Good to see everybody again. I'm glad everybody's healthy, and I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, um, okay, let's let's start. Any any prayers? I know Bob. We've got. I'm sorry. Her name is Amanda and Mitch. Amanda and Mitch. Yeah. Any any prayers? I feel like we haven't met in weeks. It's only been a week, yeah? A couple of weeks? It's strange. It's strange. You said there was two, a brother and sister, Aggies, going back to school last night and uh, died in a fatal car accident. Oh, no. <coughs> Say it again, Julie. Who was it? Um, there was a brother and sister, Aggies. I don't know who. Yours? No. No, 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 no. no. I, <laughs> but the whole time when I heard that, I'm like, oh, they went back together. Maybe I should maybe start calling them separate. <laughs> um, it was just two Aggies, their brother and sister. Died I didn't know Last night on the way back to school. Boy. <laughs> Almost a day doesn't pass when no. That's we right. don't get news of... No. Just... The news is a good thing, but God, sometimes it can be overwhelming. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for... Um, the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself, your presence through the day, for all the ways in which you offer yourself. You're never not here. Um, strengthen us. Um, take away our blindness. Um, we, we think we see so much, and um, if we were wise at all, we'd know there's a lot we miss. You're always here at work. Um, strengthen us in us our faith and whatever power it gives us um, to see you at work, to be aware of your presence, all that you're doing for all of us. Um, and we offer a thanksgiving for the Thanksgiving um, season, for the dinners the, um, with um, families and friends, whatever health we all enjoy. Um, I'm especially thankful that we're all here healthy um, again, it's good to see Bob and Marcy um, both. Um, for all the goodness of this season, and I ask for quiet hearts for all of us as we move away from Thanksgiving towards Christmas, because so often it's, um, it's a press. Help us to keep quiet hearts as we prepare for Christmas. Um, we ask a special blessing on the couple that died in the crash last night, or recently. Um, receive them into your kingdom, forgive them their sins. If there's to be a purgatory for them, um, let them take it up with joy. Um, how, how good it is um, that we hold on to that mercy for all of us. Hard to imagine what people would do without it. Um, we ask for a, um, a, a special grace for Amanda and Mitch. Um, um, surround them with your protection, help them heal from their wounds, um, be with them during this trial of suffering, um, and um, with those who are um, certainly going to feel the violence of what happened to both of them. Console their hearts, strengthen them in their faith too. Evil is with us. It's, in, it's within us, it's around us. Um, help us to be on guard, all of us. Um, 
to not be innocent because we're not. Um, take the trouble that we should to be on guard to take care. Watch over that um, couple. We offer special blessings, um, Thanksgiving for Bob and Marcy that they're both here, particularly for Bob and getting through the procedures as he did. Um, watch over all of us um, through the rest of the season and be with us tonight in our work together. We are glad to be together again. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Um, I don't want to go into details because they're almost too horrific and, and there's too much to go into, but... Um, I can make it short. Um, Bob and Bob's relatives had um, a niece um, at Thanksgiving who invited somebody and she and I think her fiancé were attacked by a, one of the people that they invited looking out for him at Thanksgiving. And they both ended up in the hospital with serious wounds. Um, it sounds like they're recovering, but Amanda and um, Mitch, if you could keep them in your prayers for the next few days, see them through at least the emergency room. And yes, the man stabbed her in her neck, her chest, and her abdomen. And her face. And her face. She's been in intensive care, and the husband has been there too. Both of them had punctured lungs. Terrible. With a knife. 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 Yeah. I'm going to read from Jones Very's poems tonight. And the re two reasons um, that I wanted to read a poem of his. The first is that Very was a contemporary of both Hawthorne and Melville and um, was a member of the, the Brooks community. The, it was a like a, a socialist community of people of like-minded friends who gathered together thinking that they could um, live like I think the disciples in the, in the New Testament. It all didn't work out but Hawthorne was a part of that and so was Jones Very. Jones Very I think was one of the really great um, 19th century poets. Very few people hear of him. He's not known very well. Um, but he, he was a man who, like the other believers, he was a Quaker friend who believed in the inner spirit, the, the workings of the inner spirit. He, he, like most Calvinists, he, he believed that man had no free will and um, that um, ultimately anything he did that was good um, was due to the fact that he was doing God's will. And so personally he felt very close to the Holy Spirit. He felt that there was nothing in his life that he could do without him. And his poems, um, his poems um, are very often show that awareness um, that, that, that people either go through their lives ignoring God and so showing that they're damned seriously damned, that they're, they're among the lost, or that they're among the saved, and, um, and that fact is reflected in their life. This poem is called The Lost. I think I've read it before, um, but, but it's appropriate tonight, so I'm going to read it here. Jones Very, The Lost. Now keep in mind that he believes that if a, if a, if a man is 
um, with the Holy Spirit, everything in his life will reflect that, and he will be one with everything in nature, everything else that goes on around him. If he's not, he'll be separated from all those things. They will just be things, okay? So just keep that in your mind as you hear the poem, The Lost. The fairest day that ever yet has shown will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. You'll be one with it. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem. Time's toys, it's like people are playing with things um, because they don't have the spirit. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And thou new risen midst these wonders live that now to them dost all thy substance give. They're the lost. They're giving their whole being the things that are perishable, they're going to die. Um, some of these lines, that thou art far away among time's toys, thou self the dayest thou looketh for. Um, um, everything's wilted, it's lost, it's, it doesn't participate in the life of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. I have a question. Yeah. So, what happens when he doesn't do well? It's obviously. People can't be perfect, so what does he think when he doesn't do that? So, that devil is doing it for him because he's being pulled on strings. I mean, I'm asking question. No, 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 and take it seriously. Um, <laughs> the the way you framed it is so abstract. Wait, here, let me just. Be, wait. The way you framed it is so abstract and hypothetical. I know very. I I know only a little bit about his personal life. So I know anecdotes and I know personal incidences. I'm not sure how he'd answer it. I'm, my guess is that he'd answer it the way, the way you're guessing that he would, that um, exactly as you did. But my assumption, my assumption is that he did everything he could to avoid doing anything else that would be displeasing to God. I don't know anything, I don't know enough about his life to know if there was something that he did do that he regretted. Um, it's, just, it's just interesting the, the way yep. they talk about it since they, they don't believe in free yep. will yep. means the opposite has to be true yep. you have to have someone else that's pulling the strings to make you do bad things yep. Yep. yes that's a hypothetical <laughs> yes it's an abstract I don't know what I do know it, most of the these are this is the group of transcendentalists I think you all have heard of them they are American transcendentalists this is at a point after the Protestant religion was in decline and they formed this very intellectual group, most of it centered around Harvard and um, um, Emerson, Thoreau, Emerson, people like that. Um, and they, were, they had turned away from traditional Christianity. They, they formed what they called the Unitarian oh, okay. congregation. They didn't believe in the Trinity. They, they believed that there was one God and, and there, the, the, the intellect was principle. Ralph Waldo Emerson was the great name in that group. Um, he gave that famous address at Harvard called um, Self-Reliance. It's usually offered in anthologies on American literature, making the point that he, I, his image was that each one followed his own drumbeat. 
And the only way that a person could finally realize his potential was to go his own way. To be very individualistic, very independent, and heterodox in terms of the Protestant theology that existed before his time. Um, very Hawthorne and Melville were all uncomfortable with that group, fundamentally at odds with it. Um, and you'll see why in a few minutes when we get there. Um, one of the episodes that I remember that's telling to me, I, th I think Emerson recounted it, very visited Emerson one day, and Emerson knew about his beliefs as a Quaker, that he was moved by this inner light and it meant everything to him. And Emerson was, I think, partly mocking him in the form of an intellectual argument, saying so, because I think June Very was standing next to the fireplace and had his arm on the mantel, and Emerson said, so when you put your arm up there, is it because God made you do it? Oh, okay. you know, I mean, okay. I mean, he was, in a sense, ridiculing. He was making fun because, for, ex for exactly that reason, if you have no free will, then nothing you do has any worth because God's doing it for you. Well, does Emerson believe in free will then? Because he said you go yeah. the way? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why I mean the, the defense of um, self-reliance. Depend on yourself, don't depend on anybody else. If you're going to achieve anything in life, it's been because you, you know, um, I think Ivor Winters called him the left hand of the devil. And um, I, I, have, I have the same problems with, because, I mean, as Catholics, we don't believe that. We believe that we can't do anything without the help of others. That, our God's, oh, our so God, wait, so wait, wait, would you, <laughs> God, God. Um, that our God is not an isolated God, that our God is Trinitarian and communal by nature. We were, we were created to love and be loved. That's our nature. Um, so the, the principle of self-reliance is in some ways um, antithetical to you know, the, our sense that everything happens in community is just a very different way of looking at the human person. Now, did you have a question? No, I'm just God. saying, so, so he's going to the far extreme See of self-reliance, right? No. Because Emerson. You, yes, because you can be yeah. self-reliant and still believe in God yeah. in your life. I'm just saying, so he's kind of like the real extreme. Would you say? Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say that, but yes. I'm saying, you know, in, yes. in our in our environment, yeah. that he would yeah. be the real extreme. Okay. He he would believe that that's a fundamental <coughs> principle guiding our life. Yeah. Okay. We know as Catholics that we we're we're held responsible for our acts, um, so we're asked to do things. But we also believe that that because our God is Trinitarian, that 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 we're missing something to the degree that we isolate ourselves from others, that, don't, that we don't work with others. Okay, very quickly, I want to do a quick review. Um, we, we summed up, we, I think we finished Anthony and Cleopatra, but I want to go over just a couple of things very briefly before we turn to Scarlet Letter. Um, one of the great themes of Anthony and Cleopatra is that something's happening Something's happening, and it's not easy to name it because um, it comes to us through what I was calling the apophatic, the absence of things, the gaps. I could go through the play and probably pick out easily 15 examples of privations, absences, gaps, missing. Um, the most obvious we've gone over a couple of times when, when the play starts and Cleopatra says, 
tell me how much we know that something's just been said, but we don't hear it. And then Anthony finally, at the end of that exchange, says, if, if, it's gonna, if you're going to put a pound on me, it would take a new heaven and a new earth. That anticipates Christianity. What he's saying is there's no way to express how much because it's infinite. So even though he's a pagan and belongs to a pre-Christian world, he's already, in some sense, an example in the play of something that's coming that is not yet. We've gone through the play, um, just two major, major themes that I, I want to underscore before we put it away. One of them is that um, there are two worlds set against each other, Caesar and Cleopatra's, and both of them, in terms of the action of the play, fade in importance. <clears throat> um, Caesar and Anthony both identified themselves with Rome, Cleopatra with Egypt. Um, Caesar, um, is consistent in his attachment to Rome through the whole play. To the extent that he's an embodiment of Rome, Rome represents um, a commitment to justice in the world and using power to bring it about. When Cleopatra says she's Caesar's a slave to fortune, she's being exact. Because we know that everything Caesar does is with, with some sense of fortune, that if he only makes the right move, if he only brings together the right power, he can overcome it. So that Rome will extend its power. It'll, it'll, it'll bring a, what he calls a universal peace. That's Rome. That, that never changes. So in one sense, he's an image of the way of the world. Justice, power, wealth, reputation, all the things that Boethius, remember, the, the four principal things that Boethius identified as temporal goods, but dangerous. Wealth, power, pleasure, reputation. Um, if you look at, so, um, one of the things that we, one of the ironies that we experience as we go through the play is that even though Caesar approaches the world in those terms, and Rome in a sense is the exemplar of a, of a, of a regime that can achieve that end, bring justice, universal justice. It doesn't. The wars never stop. When the play opens, they just finished the Civil War. Right? Um, Brutus and Cassius went to war with Caesar and Anthony because Brutus and Cassius killed Caesar. So they just finished the Civil War. They're already entering Civil Wars when the, when the play starts. Um, so I'll just name some of the battles um, that are part of the action long before we ever get to Cleopatra and Anthony. Um, Fulvia's, uh, Fulvia, Anthony's wife, warred against Lucius, who is Anthony's brother. The, so they warred against each other. The two of them made a peace and then made alliances with, with each other in order to battle against Caesar. He puts them down. Um, Libanius is sent to Parthia to get help, and Vendidius takes vengeance on the son of the Parthian king because the king had betrayed Crassius in the civil war involving Brutus and Cassius and uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. He takes vengeance on him in the middle of the play. Um, Pompey is getting, gaining power. He wants um, control of Sicily. You know that the triumvirs meet with him to settle it so they don't go to war. Anthony marries Octavia to seal the deal. As soon as he gets um, to Athens, he learns Caesar and um, Lepidus went to war with Pompey, so the truce was broken. 
They just made a truce, truce, gone. And as soon as they defeat Pompey, Caesar trumps up these accusations against Lepidus and arrests him, and we know that he's going to be executed. Wars never stop. So one of the things that we're watching, despite this belief that they can finally master nature, if they're only smart enough or powerful enough, just think about how modern that is. One of the things that the play makes clear is it's impossible for the world to overcome the sense of injuries from the past. There's no way within the world itself that man is capable because as soon as they overcome some injustice, they will have committed some injustice in doing it, somebody will avenge that. So the wars will never stop. That's a given in the play. Okay? Christ is not in the world, and we know that when Christ comes, Shakespeare knows it too, when Christ comes into the world, the answer for those wrongs is a cross. It's death. Um, so the play waits on that. That's the nature of the play. In, in that context, Anthony and Cleopatra come together to have this love, and I'm only telling you what you already know. You know what happens when, when Caesar breaks the peace with Pompey and then takes and then um, arrests Lepidus. Anthony knows that Caesar and he are going to go to war. And so the play ends with Cleopatra and Anthony going to war with Caesar and those three battles at the end that we've already, we've already looked at. Okay. Now the question that I asked last time was what's going on? Why all these withdrawals in the midst of a world that can't escape injustices and wars? In that sense it's very modern. Mm -hmm. This play will be as relevant 500 years from today as it, I mean if we, if we live that long in this world, um, as it was um, 400 years ago. I want to just read some of the passages to, to call you back to the play, to bring us back to that question that I asked last time when we ended. Act 3, scene 10. Okay, this is just after the first battle when Cleopatra joins Anthony, knowing that he's the greatest soldier in the world. All the soldiers knowing that he should have never done the battle at sea because it gave Caesar an advantage and Anthony not. But, but Anthony does it anyway. They go to sea, she pulls back, he follows her. Um, with the battle over now, Anthony says this, Hark, the land, this is Act 3, Scene 11. What page are you? Oh, it's, not, it's not a page, Martin. It's, it's the act because of all the... Just act, act three, scene 11, okay. line one. Okay. Um, Hark the land bids me tread no more upon it. It is a shame to bear me. Now remember, his identity was taken from his accomplishments as a soldier on land. Nobody could defeat him in battle. So his whole identity was as a soldier of Rome and um, his great virtues as a soldier. Now... He's, he's lost his identity, the land won't hold him. In a sense, he doesn't know who he is. Hark, the land bids me tread no more upon it. It's a shame to bear me, friends, come hither. I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. Now imagine the hero that he once was looking at himself now in this situation. 
I have a ship laden with gold. Take that, divide it, fly, and make your peace with Caesar. Fly. We, the men are not going to abandon him. They love him. Anthony, I have fled myself and have instructed cowards to run and show their soldiers. Now he's an example of cowardice. Um, Friends, be gone. I have myself resolved upon a course which has no need of you. Be gone, my treasure in the harbor. Take it, oh, my very hairs do mutiny. So he's not who he is. He's lost any sense of himself. I'm assuming most of us have had some experience like that where something happens in our lives and, and we have to question who we are, um, um, our meaning in the world. Um, he says about line 50, saying, Axine, I have offended reputation, a most unnoble swerving. Hero says, Anthony, the queen, <clears throat> he is furious at her. She says, Oh, my lord, my lord, forgive my fearful sails. I little thought you would have followed Egypt. You knew us too well. My heart was to thy rudder tied by the strings, and thou shouldest tow me after. So remember, the play began with the description of Anthony being divided. Half identified with Rome, half identified with Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. Here the division is either widened or it's complete. She says, um, oh my pardoned, Anthony, now I must to the young man send humble treaties. He has to beg for Caesar. Do you remember what happens? Eno Barbus is about ready to leave him. Um, shortly after that, remember, um, Act 4, Scene 3, we get that instance of Anthony's God leaving. Remember the oboes are playing? And this is interesting. Poetically, think about this. This is the only scene in the, in the, in the play in which we hear music. The oboes are playing under the stage, and somebody says, Anthony's God is leaving. Enobarbus is withdrawn. Canidius from um, um, the army is withdrawn. So there are these withdrawals. Something's leaving, departing. Anthony is losing himself. And um, then we get Enobarbus having left Anthony and gone to Caesar. When Anthony finds out, he tells his soldiers to take all of Enobarbus's belonging to him and give them to him. And he says, um, this is Act 4, Scene 5, go Eros, send this treasure. Do it detain, no jot, I charge thee, write to him, I will subscribe. Gentle, this is, gentle adieus and greetings. Say that I wish he never found more cause to change a master. Oh, my fortunes have corrupted honest. He's taking it on himself that Enobarbus left. When Enobarbus gets all of the gifts, this is um, Act 4, Scene 6, at the end, I am alone, the villain of the earth, and I feel I am so most, O Anthony. Thou my honor, how wouldst thou have paid my better services when my turpitude thou dost so crown with gold? He rewards him even though he left him. So Enobarbus has betrayed him. Instead of getting angry with him, Anthony takes it on himself and sends of these things. That just increases Enobarbus' shame. This blows my heart. If swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike thought. But thought will do it, I feel. I fight against thee, nor I will go seek some ditch wherein to die. So even though he left to go to Caesar, he will not fight with Caesar. He's not going to go against Anthony. His heart is breaking. Um, no, I will <coughs> seek some ditch wherein to die. The foulest best fits my ladder. <laughs> God. <laughs> Hard for me to see 
<laughs> this without thinking how Peter would have felt when he betrayed Christ, you know, to go find a grave. Because this, this was his life. So this betrayal is serious to him. Um, on Act 4, Scene 9, um, he finds his ditch. This is Enobarbus, O Sovereign Mistress of True Melancholy. The poisonous damp of night dispunge upon me that life of a rebel to my will may hang no more. He wants to give up his life. He's, there's nothing more for him to live. Throw my heart against the flint and hardness of my fault, which being dried with grief will break to powder and finish all foul thoughts. O Anthony, nobler than my revolt is infamous. Forgive me in thy own particular, but let the world rank me and register a master lever and a fugitive of Anthony. Anthony. He dies, broken heart. He's absent. He's left. Not as a soldier. Nobody killed him. Um, Act 4, scene 14. Um, sorry, Act 4, scene 14. Um, sorry, there was a line I'm not seeing. There, in the, Act 4, scene 14, about line 15 or so. Um, they've been defeated again, and Anthony says, Here I am, Anthony, yet cannot hold this visible shape, my knave. I made these wars for Egypt and the queen whose heart I... He can't even hold his shape. It's like a cloud. I mean, he, whoever he was in the beginning, he's not that man now. Um... Line 50, since Cleopatra died, he learns that she died, that she was, it was reported to him that she took her life. I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. I, who with my sword, quartered the world and evergreen Neptune's back with ships made cities, condemned myself to lack the courage of a woman, less noble mind than she, which by her death our Caesar tells, I am conqueror of myself. So in his mind, she shamed him because she had the courage to take his life. He's still alive. Um, quickly now, Act 5, Scene 2, um, you remember that um, he tries to take his life and botches it, and when she learns that he'd done that, she, she sends her servants and they pull him to the tower and the two are reunited again. Um, when he dies, she has this um, exchange with Dolabella, Act 5, Scene 2, where she describes the, the dream that she had of Anthony, remember? His legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world, his voice was property, as all the tuned spheres. For his bounty there was no winter in it, autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like, that showed his back above the elements they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownettes, realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. You know, in Revelation you get this the description of Mary as being greater than the universe. It, it's as if she sees Anthony now as, this is Thomas, that the human soul is greater than the whole material universe. She sees him as being, in his being in the next life, greater than the physical universe. Um, and you know that shortly after that, um, she gets the clown in with the asp to take her life, and 
she takes her life and um, the play ends with her saying, give me my robe, put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me. No more the juice of Egypt's grace shall moit my lip. That Egyptian world has no importance for it all. Here, here, good Iris, quick, methinks I hear Anthony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar. So, we've moved from um, a, a, a way of looking at the world that is contained by the world. It knows itself only by its own values. But now we've entered a realm in which a transcendent perspective is being brought into the play, and when, the, when you set the world against that perspective, there's nothing to show for it. It, it has no worth. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar, which the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. Husband, I come now to that name. My courage prove my title. I am fire and air. My other elements I give to baser life. So have you done? Come then. Take the last warmth of my lips. Farewell, kind Charmian. Iris, long farewell. She kisses Iris. Iris dies on the kiss. Charmian will take her laugh or her life in, a, in the next moment. So let me stop. Here's my question, just to pull this together. We've talked forever about the importance of the word action. Remember? The, it's an imitation of the plot. But the action is invisible. It's the immaterial movement that the plot imitates. There's some interior movement, some change from the beginning of the plot to the end. This is a tragedy. There's a recognition, in, say, in both Anthony and Cleopatra, and the plot turns on it. So all the things that were defined in the world's terms to begin the play have begun to fade or have faded, and they're replaced by something now transcendent. The love between the two of them is greater than whatever importance they gave to earthly things before. So here's my question, um, just a, a few minutes, and then we'll stop because we've already done this. Describe the action of Anthony and Cleopatra. Not individual scenes, because we know <laughs> we're famous for using the Bible that way. We can all pick out individual scenes to support the views that we might hold. And I've been insisting from the beginning that we've got to be careful of ourselves. We don't read so often we read for our own ideas. We've got these ideas in our heads, we read to find them. That's what we hold, that's what we look for, that's what we get. If we take the action of the play in its own terms and look at the action, what's the action of Anthony and Cleopatra? What's the effect of all these withdrawals, these, these leavings, um, the, the, the loss of this Roman sense of honor you know, Barbus goes off to a ditch and he dies with a broken heart. Couldn't be farther away from a Roman world. Cleopatra kisses Iris and she dies on the kiss. Um, something's happening in this world that the world, Caesar doesn't understand. And, and just to emphasize this a little bit, it's really interesting if you look at the way Shakespeare's done the play. It seems to me, in political terms, Caesar's a genius. I just... I, I, I can't say enough good about him. He, he, he's so worldly in everything he does. But we never get into his inside, his interior. There's a real distinction between interiority, where the spirit moves, and appearances. Caesar does everything he can that a leader should, political leader. 
even if people don't like him, is doing what he should do. We do get in the minds and hearts of Anthony and Cleopatra, deeply. We enter into their suffering, we see their pains, the cost of their love, um, all that they go through. So Shakespeare's holding up to us this contrast between appearance and reality, interiority, the, what goes on in the depths of a person's heart. And we're allowed into it. He, he allows us to go into those depths in Anthony and Cleopatra, not in Caesar. So we become aware of something happening with them. Well, see, you know, if I plotted this last week. If you look at Caesar's action, it's a rising action from the beginning to the end. He, he's always successful. There's nothing tragic to his action at all. But if you watch Cleopatra, it starts with relative success. They're prosperous. They love each other. They drink. They, you know, eat. But it goes like this. And my question last week was, if you look at their action in terms of Caesar's rising action, it's a fall. They lose everything in the world that they thought important in the beginning. So it's either a falling action, and there's what they do is stupid and ridiculous, or compared to Caesar's, it represents a move towards the world to something transcendent. How do we look at the action in Anthony and Cleopatra? Just briefly before we put it away. No, I, no, in terms of the play, not whatever ideas any of you, any of you has in your head. Well, we're reading, we're, we're reading the play, not what, he, not any political position. We're trying to read a play here. The action I saw in the whole play was death. That, that's pretty much it. Everything but Caesar, and she couldn't beat Caesar, so she killed herself. So, the, I mean, to me, the action, I, I'm not seeing what you're seeing in this transcendent great thing. I see a couple of horribly flawed, stupid people doing horribly flawed, stupid things and killing everything they touch in one way or another. So I, I'm not getting what you're seeing. Yeah. Remember that, because um, I've tried to be really clear in this last time, Mark. If you look at the play, um, there's death all around everywhere long before Anthony and Cleopatra comes into it. So it's not that they're infecting anything, it's just death is with the world. It's a part of what goes on in Rome when Rome's trying to achieve peace, actually. So the question is, what's going on? Why does Shakespeare do this? And, and particularly, why does he let us into the interior? And my, my serious question is, if you look at, if you look at the way in which the two of them see themselves at the beginning. Anthony's Roman, Cleopatra's Egyptian. Um, do they identify with their political regime? Is that the source of their identity at the end of the play? Are they changed? They're fractured. Huh? They're fractured. They're kind of half and half. They don't know at the end. They, they don't know where they fit in. At the end? Right. Okay, hold on. You called this... By the way, the play begins with Anthony... Fracture. Those, those are the opening lines. And we see him in those scenes where, that I read where he really begin. he's lost himself. So I, I would argue that it's not even a, he's not even fractured, he's lost himself completely. But do you call this fractured? Give me my robe, put on my crown, I have immortal, immortal longings in me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist the lip here. He thinks I hear Anthony call. Is that a fractured person or is that somebody committed to what in her mind is this transcendent life beyond this world? She, she's separated herself from Egypt. 
Um, they can't fit in either world, so it's kind of like they're in limbo. But why would you say limbo when she's saying, I hear Anthony Paul, she just described him in Larger Than the Universe. Well, because she left Egypt and she can't go to Rome, so there's some other place that she has to be, because she can't be in Rome. Anybody else? Neither one of them love the other one. You don't think so? No. Neither one of them, because they didn't trust each other, they would make up things in their own mind and take action, which was against the partner. And it happened all through that. You don't think that... Where was the sincerity of the love to believe the other one was truthful? Yeah. You know, it just went back and forth. My question was... That's Marcy, not love. Yeah. When, after the third battle, even after the first one, when Cleopatra says, pardon, can we still say... Wait, wait by the way, I, I would argue... That I think the text supports the reading that both of them are so much a part of their regimes at the beginning, Anthony a part of Rome, Cleopatra, Egypt, that even though they say they love each other, they're still divided, fractured. But when she leaves and he follows and he says, I, my sides don't hold, the land doesn't hold me, and, um, and she says, pardon, um, does neither of them at that point in their regrets for what they've done, is neither one of them moved beyond where they were at the beginning? Are they still the same selfish people identified with their regimes? And Wait, because I want the text, the text. When they express those regrets, their sorrow for what they've done, and then you get the, the, the statements they make, you know, as they, as they prepare for death and then take their lives, both of them. And, and they don't even do that in in honesty. Sorry? They don't even do death in honesty Why because one thinks the other one has died but hasn't. So this one dies because that one thinks that one did die. You know, it's it's just a mixture of... He was such a good shoulder, how can he didn't kill himself right the first time? <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's what... Well, here, I mean, there's another way to look at that, too. There's another way to look at that. Anthony's the greatest soldier. And by the way, he didn't take his life yet. And Eros is the name of the guy who did it. Mm -hmm. He botched it. It's a serious question whether something has entered this world to, that neither one of them understands well. They're, they're entering into a depth of interiority that neither one of them has known before because they lived on the surface of things with their regimes. The fact that he botches it means stupid, what an idiot. Or it could also mean it's another indication that that's one more sign that he's out of, he's not the person he was. Fred, you go ahead, go, or Carl, go well, to whichever one. Absolutely he's not the person that he was, and that's the whole, that's the whole McGill there. He started out being, you know, emperor quality person, like a warrior, you know, undefeatable. He, he loves this woman. You can't come into this class without taking a test. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Come on. He's living on the side, a good life in Egypt, not having, you know, the political things to worry about there. Um, he goes to Rome, gets married to Caesar's sister. Whoa, what happened to his love there? Is he conflicted? Yes. He, he doesn't seem to have political conflict. He's losing influence. He's losing power. 
He goes to war. He's losing himself. Why did he choose to go to sea? Stupid move, right? Stupid. We don't know why. It's fundamentally not him. He's he's changing. He's a different person. He ends up losing the war. He gives up. He he's he's beyond self-deprecation. He's down and out. He's no more, you know, emperor quality. He's he's no more a leader. Set that next to Eno. How do you look at Eno Barbas? He wasn't a top flight person. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He wasn't a leader of men. No, but he's a great soldier and a great follower. He's, he's, right. Wait, remember these men have fought in wars for, for years and years he, and years. He just and went years. to the other side. That's all. That's he, all. Well, he brought a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> why, Suzanne? Is. Tell me why I'm doing this, please. Give me a reason. <laughs> Fred, did you I, have I, something? I mean, well, I, I think Carl and I are kind of on the same page. I, I think there's a definite evolution that, that occurs. I mean, if you look at it from the beginning, he's a different man. Isn't Cleopatra he? is very much Egypt. Uh, Ant- Antony is predominantly Roman at that point in time, but he's beginning to see that there's something other than what his past life has been predominantly focused upon. When you use the word "see," can does he feel it? Does he even? Can you even name something he that he sees? In the beginning, yeah. I don't think he's figured it out. Yeah, yeah. you know, he's still struggling with why he even feels the way he does. It's very contradictory to what he's been accustomed to yeah. for the preponderance of his life. And what we see from all the different withdrawals, particularly associated with them, I think, is stages of that evolution as they continue to struggle with who they were before and who they're ultimately going to become. And even up to the very end, they're still struggling. But I think in the end, they ultimately get to the point of, a, of an adult Romeo and Juliet, if you will. The love that they share is more important at that point than anything else. And they're looking forward to, you know, if I can't have you in this life, you know, I can have you in the next. One, I mean, one of the one of the brief responses, because I want to ask Suzanne where she's in this, but one of the differences that I would make between those two, because... She's going to bring clarity to all of us. That's why I'm going to turn to her. There you go. Um, that one of the differences between Anthony and Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet is that um, everything that happens between them, between Anthony and Cleopatra, Get, leave them with a sense of having been betrayed by the other. Mm-hmm. So in one sense you can say they're much, I would say, I would argue, they're much closer to Christ because both of them are leaders and they've been betrayed by their love. So in terms of lovers, they've experienced a betrayal that, that Romeo and Juliet don't. So I would say that their, their love, in fact you know, I mean, if there's any doubt about it, that their love is much closer, closer to a Christ-like love in the sense that they've entered a transcendent realm they have no idea. Christ hasn't come into the world, so they can't conceive of it the way we do. But the way Shakespeare has presented it shows us they've both experienced betrayals from the people they most love. Um, she skipped out on the war. Um, she gave him news that she was, you know, I mean, they're, they're still conflicted in that world. <clears throat> but they're, they're, the, the, question, the question, serious question, 
the, 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 I don't want to leave everybody because we've got to get it here, and I want to ask the doc, but is at the end of the play, do we continue to see things the way Caesar does? Because he won't, he has not entered into this experience of this transcendent thing that we're giving at the end of the play, particularly with Cleopatra. He doesn't see any of that. He can't feel it. He can't see it. They have. They felt a betrayal. They both let each other down. And they go past that love. So in one sense, you can say they're, they're, they're pre-images of what Christ is going to bring into the world. And I, my, my argument would be Shakespeare's aware of that. What he show, goes back to my question, is God not at work in the world before Christ came? What Shakespeare's doing is showing us that there is a love there. Does the world understand it? Absolutely not. Because the world tends to see things in terms of success, power, niceness, what I want, what I get. But what we've seen is both of them have lost that, and not only lost it, but they've lost it with a sense of having betrayed each other, and then gone beyond it. So there's a similarity between them and Romeo and Juliet, but there's also a really this Romeo and Juliet to me are adolescents. I mean, that's an adolescent well, love. So they're an adult version of that. Yeah, with very, with very different emotions. Yeah, but I would argue, I would argue that I think maybe Caesar saw something at the end that he hadn't seen before. I would, I would too. I don't see he. I don't. I he don't do think he's the same man he was yeah. as he was in the beginning either. Yeah. No, I, I, you know that I, I don't have because the his words at the end. But in, in terms of what that transcendent view opens for the play, there's a depth that he, he's a political man. He has not entered into that world. We've got to pull it, I've got to stop this so we get on to Scarlet Letter. Do you, what's your thought on this, Doc? Did you have a response to anything anybody's saying? I think that um, there's definitely a movement for both of them from beginning to end. Um, <coughs> And it seems to me that um, where they were fractured <coughs> at the beginning um, and in lots of places through the play, um, that at the end um, they don't know, they can't see what we can see because they didn't know Christ. And they don't fully understand, I don't think, um, the love that is driving them. I don't think, I mean, Cleopatra's slept with all kinds of political powerhouses. Um, she has a son by a former <coughs> Caesar. Um, but I don't think there was any love in any of that. Mm. That was strictly political. And pleasure. And pleasure, hopefully. Um, no, it is. She's a woman given to pleasure. I mean, when you. But I think that at the end, um, they are each committed to what they see as their love of the other person, even though they don't understand it or know exactly where they're going. But to both of them, um, life and honor um, have been really important. And they're both giving up life. And the honor that they're looking for is no longer, does no longer belong to this world, but to each other in a way, Marcy, that it, that it wasn't before. Um, 
I don't think they get it, and I don't think they understand it. For sure. But they're committed to it, and they're moving toward it. Yeah, I just I want to add what I think is a cor <laughs> correction here, and it goes to the point some of you made. I don't. There's no way in which they understand Christ because he's not around. Shakespeare does, and the the position that I'm taking. You already know it because it's been clear. I think from my presentation. I think what Shakespeare's showing as a Catholic is his awareness of a, of a love in a way the world is generally not. And as we've been looking at the Portia, Helena, you can, Othello, we could go on and on with other Shakespeare plays, but, but, but I, I would just add this as a, I hope a correction here. When she says, give me my robe, now no more the juice of Egypt, and he thinks I hear Anthony call, her, her description, this is not, a woman who just feels something and doesn't link into some perception of something or some understanding. She's had a dream of Anthony. She holds to that. It's, it, Dolabella's going, be quiet. He thinks she's lost it. It's like the doctors at the end of Lear when they say, be quiet. Shakespeare at every one at the end of his tragedies puts the tragic figure in a position of having left the world, entered a darkness that the world does not know. The tragic hero always isolates himself from the world. He's no longer measured by those terms. It's the nature of the tragic action. Every one of them. Lear says, look there, look there. The doctor thinks he's nuts. He's not. Well, I mean, you can argue that, but you can also argue he sees Cordelia. Because every one of Shakespeare's tragedies ends on one of those liminal moments it's a, it's a threshold where the tragic hero, because of his suffering, through his suffering, enters into another realm. And the conventional world that doesn't want to define itself in terms of those sufferings, success power, doesn't see it. When she says, particularly after a dream, methinks I hear Anthony call, I see him rousing. This isn't somebody who doesn't see. She doesn't know Christ, obviously doesn't. But I, I don't think it's accurate to say she doesn't see. Both of them have some sense that has some clarity that there's something beyond the world as it's been defined to them all their lives. They're entering a transcendent order. This is not tragedy where you say bad things. Are. Remember, the action of tragedy is never that. There's a turn. There's an answering of some wrongs. And in the greatest of Shakespeare's tragedy, he's always taking us to something beyond. So just hold on to that thought as a, that, that we can all say that this is pointless, or you can say that, that Shakespeare, through his language, through what he's helped us to see and feel, um, has shown us something going on in the world that the world does not see. And this happens to you know, with all think about it, with all these withdrawals, <laughs> why do you do that? And and the fact that this is happening just before Christ comes into the world. Tell me how much. He just said, "I love you." We never hear those words. New heaven and new earth. Shakespeare's dealing with something the Roman world didn't quite know, and I think it's his way as a poet of of using poetry to help us see something that the world does. Remember what Cleopatra said too, when she said she wasn't gonna go back to Egypt because if she went back there, Caesar was just gonna use her as a trophy. He was gonna treat her as a thing. And all the Roman poets would buoy her. They would, they would present Anthony as a drunk 
just nobody, um, which doesn't do justice to the play. That reading doesn't do justice to what's going on here, the suffering that they go through. And they would boy her. They would take away everything feminine. So Shakespeare's making it clear that the world has a certain way of looking at things. And one of the things that we've been seeing all along is the poets help us to see that there's something more going on. So let me Cleopatra says at the end yeah. that she says, husband, I come. And yeah. let, let my courage make me worthy of that title. Yeah. She's never wanted to be married yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, there's extraordinary. I mean, this is... And remember Aeschylus. We didn't do Aeschylus. We're not going to do him, I think, but if anybody wants, we can come back and go back to the beginnings with this group. But Aeschylus, you know, who's the first great tragedian, um, over and over and over again, he talks about the wisdom that comes through suffering. It's the Job story. It's Christianity. That, that um, The great poets help us to see that something, something's offered. Do people always accept it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it's not because it isn't offered, it's because they refuse it. Because every one of those great poets shows that suffering is not meaningless unless you make it so. So, let's do Scarlet Letter. Still don't like that they killed themselves, and that's supposed to be okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's, they're pre-Christian. That, I know, I know, it makes it true. But I mean, that's the, I mean, part of, part, Part of that for me is the beauty of it, that Shakespeare, it's so easy for moderns to debunk. Truly, it's a modern quality to put things down, constantly put things down. Shakespeare's showing us that, that the, the, the suffering in the world isn't meaningless or stupid. That's, that's a very modern, that um, something, something is going on here that the Romans would never have seen. They just wouldn't have seen it. Okay. Does everybody have a copy of Scarlet Letter? Does everybody have copies? Jeannie, Jean. Does everybody have copies? I've got a couple extra copies if anybody needs copies. Okay. Um, just a brief reminder historically where we are. Um, remember, in All's Well That Ends Well, um, Lefeu says, miracles are past. And he makes that statement because Helen has just performed a miracle. We've entered the modern world. It's a Reformation, um, Copernican world. Science has become the basic mode of knowing our world. It's replaced myths and stories. Um, and we move from Shakespeare, who's right there on the verge of modernity, aware of the world that he's leaving. If you look at, if you look, if you read his plays, lots of them, miracles and supernatural events take place all the time. The ghost comes into Caesar, Julius Caesar. Um, what's happening here? In Hamlet, Hamlet begins with the ghost of his father coming in. That's a supernatural, it's beyond the natural world. There, you cannot understand a single thing in Hamlet without taking off from that ghost, because that ghost sets everything in motion. If you remember from Winter's Tale, the oracle is given that that which is lost will be lost until that which is found, I mean, Perdita. And, um, Pericles hears the music of the spheres. It's an un Nobody, to my knowledge, has shown that the way Shakespeare has in Pericles. So 
Over and over and over and over again in Shakespeare's plays, he is completely faithful to the natural world, presented just the way Faulkner does in naturalistic terms, but he's always bringing something in that makes us aware that there's another world at work. Um, there's a sacramental, you can say, there's a sacramental aspect to his work. So, we're at a point now, Hawthorne is writing mid-19th century, and he's looking back to the American founding, which is a century and a half after the time of Shakespeare. So the American founding takes place just after the Copernican Revolution and the Reformation, and reflects a lot of what's just happened in the world. Okay, um, and let me just go back um, and um, recall um, a base, a few basic principles that we went over when we did um, Milton and Dante. Quick, quick review. Okay. 1531, Henry makes himself the supreme head of England. He, he declares himself the head of the Church of England concerning doctrinal matters. In 1534, he passes the Act of Supremacy requiring that all the nobles, everybody sign off on that authority. Anybody who doesn't will be liable to treason. You know that Thomas More didn't, he was put in the prison and finally executed. He separates from Rome. That's the first, he sets a precedent for the nation making itself more important than the universality of the church. Okay? Um, we saw what happened when we dealt with Milton and um, Dante, that the church began to divide down, and it, it wasn't over just doctrinal matters. It's really important to see that. The part of the problem of what happened then has to be seen in terms of um, political and economic inequalities. The, lots of the poor people associated the wrongs of the political regime with the church because the church had allied itself with the aristocratic, aristocratic structures. So the peasant revolts, a number of the, the people who found themselves um, opposing Rome did it on political grounds. You're talking about people who aren't educated, they're responding to their needs and the injustices that are making up their lives. So. It's, it's a very complicated time. It's not to be explained just in terms of theology or doctrines, but, but we saw that the um, Presbyterians broke off, um, the Anglicans broke off, the Presbyterians broke off. They both went at war with each other, wanting political power so they could force the other to take on their beliefs. So the wars increased, they continued, we, we did all that. The Puritans were a separate group because they didn't feel that the Anglicans or the Presbyterians went far enough in their reforms. They went off to the Netherlands, they were there, they tried to found a city there, it didn't work out, they came to America. So in 1620, a group of pilgrims, all Puritan, um, founded the Northern regime. That's our, that's our beginnings in the North. In the South, in 1607, Jamestown was founded. That was an economic venture, purely. So one of the differences between North and South from the beginning is the North was Reformation Protestant. In essence, people came there to be a light of glory to God, basically, a light on a hill. The Jamestown people were coming as prisoners in an economic interest, so it was the beginning of the plantation system. Prisoners were sent from England to do labor on the plantations. That's where the south, southern plantation system began. 
So North and South are two, have from the beginning been two radically different cultures. And the tension of them came to the surface in the Civil War, okay, basically then. But our beginnings go back to 1620 when the Puritans came here from England and the Netherlands. Um, shortly after they arrived, they got into squabbles that divided the communities almost immediately. Um, and the, the reasons for the division were um, differences with regard to two different beliefs that were fundamental to all Protestants. What they called the covenant of grace, of free grace, or the covenant of works. Okay? Now hold on to this because it's going to play on what it's really important to see this one as we read through Hawthorne. The, the, um, all of the Protestants were following, all the Puritans were following Calvin, who believed that man had no free will, that everything he did um, was following the will of God, that whatever good they accomplished was only conforming to whatever God had planned for them, wanted them to do. And anybody who didn't do that was already predestined to be damned. So all people were predestined at the beginning. So people were divided into two radically different classes, the saved and the damned. Okay? The issue between the Puritans was, um, <sighs> had to do with a belief in grace and the movement of the Holy Spirit. Some of the Puritans believed that one's commitment to the Holy Spirit raised them above the, the political laws of, of, the, of, the, of the culture, the regime. So Anne Hutchinson, for example, believed in free grace. She took a position that um, faith elevated her above the laws of her community. So the magistrates called together, they had a hearing. It's sad to read, I mean, you should go online and read it. It's really, really is sad to, to watch what they do with her. But, but um, she was consistent in her belief all along. I mean, sola fide, she, faith led her. She believed that she was led by the Holy Spirit. And since she was, she wasn't subject to the laws. She was, according to the community, antinomian against the laws. The majority of the Puritans believed in faith, um, but they believed that the, the good works that a person did was the evidence of that faith. This is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. So the division has to do with both of them are holding to faith, but some of them hold that faith raises them above the laws of the community. The other believes that it's only by obeying those laws that you show how faithful you are. So the important thing for the, for the works people was that when you accepted Christ, you showed that you accepted it by entering the church and um, conforming to its laws. So according to that group, Christianity becomes a moral code. That if you follow the laws, it's a sign of your salvation. Okay? It was on the basis of that division that she was exiled, and others too. But that tension is still in the story. It, it just exists. It's a part of the founding. It's a part of the problem with the two groups. Is that clear, the differences? Both of them believe in God. Both of them believe that human beings are subject to God. Um, the antinomians, the, the free grace, grace people, believe that um, their faith, because it sources the Holy Spirit, raises them above the codes of the community. The other people believe that faith is the basis of everything, 
um, that you um, that the evidence of your faith is the work that you do, that you conform to the laws of the group. Um, so in one, Christianity reduces to a moral code. In the other, it's elevated to something that no longer is subject to the codes or of the of the community. Okay, that's Hawthorne mentions the um, expulsion of Anne Hutchinson in this book, and you're going to see it in the divines and everything they do with Hester and among themselves. That's the tension inherited in the beginning of um, Scarlet Letter and our founding. Why would someone think they're above the, the law is supposed to be correct? Why would you, I'm, I'm kind of confused. What you're saying, how convenient is that? I'm above all of you people. Yeah, but I, mean, I don't understand. If the laws are therefore to be good laws, then what does above the law really mean in her point? Here, let me just take a minute with this, because it's, I mean, it's, to me it's a terribly complicated thing, but I think it might help to see this. In the, in the, in the, in the Protestant world, as it, as it declines um, until we get to the Puritans, um, there's a general turning away from natural law and natural philosophy. The Protestants don't like Aristotle, they don't like reason, reason's corrupted. That's a fundamental doctrine of the Protestant world. Reason's corrupted. So um, faith is the arbiter of everything you do. Um, Calvin believed that the only way we could understand God and man was through the Bible. So he would have rejected all natural philosophy as, as an attempt to understand, like St. Thomas's or Aristotle's arguments or Plato's. He would, have, he, he would have found no value in those at all. He believed that the only way we could understand God is through the Bible. And the laws that they made were according to their interpretation of the Bible. So all of the laws that they set down at the beginning of the founding derive from their reading of the Bible. Not natural philosophy. They've already rejected that. They have no belief in natural law. So the laws they make will not reflect something subordinate to God. That means every law that they enact is, is by its nature divine. It's like Islam. It's a theocracy. For anybody to violate those laws is an indication that they're heretical. They're sinners. They're going against God's law. It's like Islam. That means every violation of a law is far more severe as it is here. The punishments are going to be greater. Because you're not just, you're not just violating a natural law. You're violating God's law. So in the Catholic tradition over the ages, there was always a distinction between um, divine realities and natural realities. So Aristotle and Plato were important people to understand because they helped us understand something about our natural condition before grace comes into it. So long before Christ came into the world, regimes had laws. If you read Plato's politics, or the Republic, or Aristotle's politics, you'll see the basis of good laws, what makes good laws. That's long before Christ. They had no scripture. So they could make a, they could make a defense of good laws on the basis of reason alone. In the theocracies here, that's not true. There are no laws except God laws as they understand them. And Hutchinson rejected them because she said that since the source of her faith was the Holy Spirit, she lived by him. That earthly laws could be in error, they could be flawed. If you watch what happens in her trial, I mean, you, all, all you can say is, 
how in one sense unlawful, I mean how un, how harsh and severe and in some ways so against nature what they were doing, but that was their theocracy. Okay? So that tension exists in our founding. Okay? Um, everyone believed that man had no free will, that God's will was irresistible, and people divided between two states, predestined to be saved or damned. So whatever choices you made would reflect whether you were among the one or the other class. Okay? It's that black-white condition that defines Hawthorne's world, and in one sense, defines what he does in the way that he writes this. I want to read this from um, Ever Winters. It's from an essay by Ever Winters in uh, Defense of Reason. He says this, The Puritan theology rested primarily upon the doctrine of predestination and the inefficaciousness of good works. Good works mean that we can't, they believe, the reason they believe this is they believe we couldn't buy God off. Good works will never get us into heaven. So instead of saying, like Dante, the good works are good works, but they're not enough to get us into heaven, they would say good works are worth nothing. Because to claim that is to claim that we can bribe God. We can buy our way into heaven. And they don't believe that. It separated men sharply in certainty into two groups, the saved and the damned, and technically at least was not concerned with any subtler shadings. This in itself represents a long step towards the allegorization of experience, for a very broad abstraction is substituted for the patient study of the minute of moral behavior long encouraged by Catholic tradition. So what we get is a black-white understanding of man. There are no subtle gradations. Um, and a tendency to look at the world in terms of abstractions, ideas, instead of concrete realities. Is that clear? And you're going to see it. Because in the book, you're going to see Hawthorne constantly say of the Scarlet Letter, it's a sign of sin. That A on her breast is an indication that she belongs to the class of sinners. She's, she's set outside the community. It's a sign. It's an abstraction of something more. And occasionally, Hawthorne, You'll see Hawthorne doing that with abstractions. Um, so uh, just a couple broad background issues to, to keep in mind. Hawthorne is writing at the time of Melville. They loved each other. Uh, when they read each other's works, they became immediate friends. And one of the things I'd like to just ask you to keep aware of, when you read Hawthorne, particularly in the Custom House, you're going to see how funny he is. He's making fun of all these public figures because they're, they're well, wait till we get there because I'm going to ask you what the Custom House is about. But he's making fun of these figures and he's enjoying himself exactly the way Ishmael did in Moby Dick. Because you remember when Ishmael started, he was ready to shoot somebody. Said when when I when I bringing up the end of funeral lines and I'm ready to shoot somebody in the head, it's time for me to go to sea. And when he goes to sea, remember he immediately gets caught up in Ahab's cause. He said, "I was the one who shouted loudest." That this whole quest of vengeance took him up. And we talked about that. That everybody lives with a sense of wrongs from the past, like Caesar, and we want we want to do something to undo them to get away from them. That's how Ishmael started. But remember, halfway through the journey. He finds his heart melting. Remember when he was squishing squid and, 
and we, we watch a number of changes in Ishmael's character until he finds himself declaring his love for everything in the universe, and he finds meaning everywhere. So the, the, the man that started Moby Dick, who darkened everything, finds light and meaning and love everywhere in the universe. He's the one who saved, like Jonah, to come back to tell the story. It seems to me one of the things he's, Melville is doing through him is helping us to see the world is not dark the way Ahab saw it. Because remember, Ahab saw nothing but evil everywhere. That's that dark side of the Protestant world. Um, Ishmael shows us there's meaning if, if only we're humble enough to be open to it. Hawthorne's doing the same. He's funny, he enjoys these people, he's partly critical of them, but in his, in his time of the customer, he finds this package, he goes into it, and a story opens for him. He's going to give us that story. So just think of the similarities between Hawthorne and what Hawthorne does with Ishmael, because remember, Ishmael writes the story, he comes back and writes it. Hawthorne is writing this story, and both of them love the other because both of them, each of them saw in the other what they called the, the brotherhood of sin. I just think that's the brotherhood of sin. What they were doing, the brotherhood of sin, both of them grew up. Remember, Ahab comes from a predestined world. He's very Calvinistic. He believes that everything's predestined, that there's this evil in the world, um, and it, it, it's an insult to him to think that a human being is already predestined before he's even born. And the outrage of that is that tragic line of action. Um, both of them grew up in this Protestant world in which people were divided into these two classes, and those who were saved saw themselves as saved and looked at the others as damned. So there was not this shared sense of sin, that all people are in sin. It's, it's one of the heartrending things about this story because um, you know that Hester's separated from the world on the basis of her sin, and Dimsdale hides his sin. So both of them are isolated in very different ways, but they're both isolated. And what they both share in common is their sin. And what Hawthorne makes us aware of, they're very, it's like Anthony and Cleopatra, we're back. What, we, what the story does is take us into the interior of their two worlds, so we see the suffering they both undergo pretty deeply, and the way they're offset from a world who doesn't seem to experience sin or see sin very well at all. The rest of the world is complacent, saved, not bothering, doing what they do. So there's this radical division between these two groups. What Melville did in Moby Dick and what Hawthorne's doing here is um, taking us into a world in which, because of the sins people carry, they're more able to relate to other human beings in a way that people who deny sins don't. It's one of the, it seems to be one of the great contributions they've made to American literature. Okay, so the story, it seems to me the great Themes of the story, it's a love story and it's a revenge story. Dimsdale and Hester make love, she conceives a child, um, she's singled out from the community, he's the minister, he won't come out, and we're, we're brought into this love story, but also the revenge that Chillingworth wants to take on both of them, most especially Dimsdale, 
because Dimsdale is in hiding. That's, that's the storyline. At the center of it, to me, it seems to me something, two, two points that are really important here to underscore. One is that Hawthorne's going back, I believe, that Hawthorne is going back to the founding to refound it. So this work is like almost all the epics that we've read. It's a refounding. When you get to the end, the end will close with Dimsdale on Inauguration Day. It's a founding day when he does something that shocks this whole world. I can't tell you because I don't like giving away endings, you know that. But one of the ways to look at the world, this novel, is that it's refounding. That Hawthorne's going back to this founding generation and, and what in his mind are these inhuman doctrines, opening the sorrow that they caused and an answer to them. That's the, basically the story of Scarlet Edwards. It's going into the human heart to show the sufferings that humans um, endure um, and we'll have to ask the question, I mean, that I've been asked, is Christ around? Is he there or not? Or The people who don't suffer, who want to live their comfortable lives, are on the outside of this world. They're the ones who are contributing to the problems. So Hawthorne's making us aware of, of what he calls this brotherhood of sin, how important it is that the people acknowledge the, the sins in their lives and whatever they do with them. That's, that's one. The other interesting thing about the, the story is that the sin is explicitly identified with sex and pregnancy. So, I mean, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that Calvin hated the body. The, the Calvinists looked down on the body. They say that they saw the body as depraved, that word abomination. You know, they kept getting in Faulkner's world, that word abomination, that, some, that somebody would commit a sexual act is one of the most grotesque, explicit images of sex, and then to bring a child into the world who's clearly the product of sin only deepens the wrong. And, it, and we're going to see this here. The ministers are going to get upset because they, they're going to think Pearl's a sign, a living embodiment of the sin itself. She is sin. So there's this sense of because of this black-white view in our founding um, that's connected with sex and creation, bringing a child into the world. And so Hawthorne's going right to the center of the American character and the way that it stands towards the issue of continuity, continuing a civilization, keeping alive, keeping alive a people, the darkness that one generation is going to inflict on the next. Um, why the Custom House? Why the Custom House? Um, I, what I'd like to do to start is I'm just going to read through some of the passages in the Custom House and then ask you, um, if you've all started the story, you know that the Custom House is so different from the story. The story is um, mystical, spiritual. It, it has a more moral depth because we enter into the suffering of people that they suffer from each other, um, from their sins. The custom ad is comic. Custom ad is very funny. Why did, why did um, Hawthorne introduce the Scarlet Letter with the custom house? Because the two don't seem to join at all. Okay? So I, I want to leave that question. I want to read some things and then come back to it and see what you think. 
Let me go through some of the passages in the customize. Partly I'm doing this because I I may be wrong here, but I'm not sure that all of you have begun the reading because <laughs> I've been hearing from some of you that um, that you haven't even started yet, and I hope I hope this will get you going. Um, just know, for those of you who have not started, I know a number of you haven't, the custom has is very different. It's just very, very different from the story itself, so keep that in mind. Okay? Let's look at the custom has. Turn to page 8. Hawthorne begins his recounting of his experiences in the Custom House aware, come on, come on, just come in. Um, I didn't mean to scare you away the last time. Um, he begins the Custom House um, aware of what happens when one party takes over and the other is left. Because typically, the party that comes into power tosses out <coughs> the people from the, <coughs> the other party, and, and Hawthorne becomes expendable. Because the, um, the Whigs have come into power, and he's a Democrat, and he's going to lose his office. So he recounts this time while he was at the Custom House, and during this time makes it clear he did no writing. It's as if his imagination dried up. That working this world killed his imagination. Pretty clear in that. Says page eight. Cluster all these individuals together as they sometimes were with other miscellaneous ones to diversify the group. And for, thy, for the time being, it made the custom house a stirring scene. Put down a few lines. Often they were asleep, but occasionally might be heard talking together in voices between speech and a snore. And with that lack of energy that distinguishes the occupants of almshouses and all those other human beings who depend for subsistence on charity or monopolized labor or anything else but their own independent exertions, these old gentlemen seated like Matthew at the receipt. Now think of the implications of that. At the receipt of customs, but not very liable to be summoned thence, like him for apostolic errands where the custom house of officers... On just on the basis of that passage alone, what would the reading, the audience response to Hawthorne be? To describe the custom house people that way, like tax collectors. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a good mm -hmm. in, in scripture. Hawthorne's putting them down. He's putting down a whole institution. Yeah, and and nobody like or very few people liked it. He was widely criticized for the Custom House because he seems to be criticizing this institution and the way in which um, tenure puts people to sleep. They take the work for granted, they don't do anything, they go to sleep. As you read on in this, you're going to see the only thing they do is sleep and eat. They almost do no work. Go over on page 9. He, he, descri he describes his fondness for Salem and then says at the bottom of 9, and yet, though invariably happiest, happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep and aged root which my family has struck in the soil. It is now nearly two centuries and a quarter since the original Britain, the earliest immigrant of my name, because there was an actual Hawthorne in the founding, 
made his appearance. And here his descendants have been born and died and have mingled their earthly substance with the soil. Until no small portion of it must necessarily be akin to the mortal frame wherewith for a little while I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachments which I speak of it is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Now remember that because he's making clear his identification with the past through the earth. Through the earth. Um, for few of my countrymen can know what it is, nor as frequent transplantation is perhaps better for the stock, need they consider it desirable to know. That is, most people are transient, they're always moving, they don't know this. He's, he's identifying himself with the land and his forebears. Um, um, middle of the page, page 10, he's talking about his forebears. His son too inherited the persecuting spirit and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches that their blood may be fairly said to have left a stain upon him. So deep a stain indeed that his old dry bones in the Charter Street burial ground must still retain it, if they've not crumbled utterly to dust. I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, or whether they are now growing under the heavy consequences of them in another state of being. <laughs> At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes, and pray that any curse incurred by them, as I've heard, and as the dreary and unprosperous condition of the race, for many a long year back would argue to exist, may now and henceforth be removed. He's taking on himself the sins of the past. So there's two ways in which he's like the, the epic poets we've been writing. Because you know that every epic poet goes back to the past and carries it forward, and they're always transforming it. The Hawthorne is taking on the guilt of his ancestors and presumably doing something here to try to answer himself and what he does. Um, 15, page 15, he describes the sound of soon growing to like these people, coming to like them, but then he, he describes one of them, the bottom of page 15, but as respects the majority of my core of veterans, there would be no wrong done if I characterized them generally as a set of wearisome old souls who had gathered nothing worth preservation from their varied experiences of life. They seemed to have flung away all the golden grain of practical wisdom which they had enjoyed so many opportunities of harvesting and most carefully to have stood their memories with the husks. They spoke with far more interest and unction of their morning's breakfast or yesterday's, today's, or tomorrow's dinner than of the shipwreck of 40 or 50 years ago. Um, he describes the father of the custom house, the leader of the middle of page 16. Looking at him merely as an animal and there was very little else to look at, he was a most satisfactory object from the thorough healthfulness and wholesomeness of his system and his capacity at that extreme age to enjoy all or nearly all the delights which he had ever aimed at or conceived of. The careless security of his life in the custom house on a regular income and with but slight and frequent apprehension of removal had no doubt contributed to make time pass lightly over him. He has no sense of the past, no sense of the job even now. Um, the original and more potent causes, however, lay in the rare, this is crucial, 
lay in the rare perfection of his animal nature, the moderate proportion of intellect, and the very trifling admixture of moral and spiritual ingredients. These latter qualities indeed being barely enough measured to keep the old gentleman from walking on all fours. <laughs> his only interest is in eating. He'll make that clear. And he says there's only one uh, what great excuse for an adventure was the difficulty he had with a goose. <laughs> keep in mind, just for a second, what's the difference, because uh, I want to come back to this, What's the difference between these people and this generation and the founding fathers who left England, went to the Netherlands, left Netherlands, came here, risked their lives to set up this light on the hill for God? Um, go on over 24-25. He says on page 24 at the top, none of them, I presume, had ever read a page out of my editing None of them know his stories. He's already published several stories by now. At the bottom of the page, he's making fun of himself. He says, no longer seeking nor caring that my name should be blazed abroad on title pages. I smiled to think that it now another kind of vogue. The Custom House marker imprinted it with a stencil and black paint on pepper kegs, baskets of annatto, sugar, cigar boxes, bales of all kinds of dutiful merchandise, and testimony that these commodities had paid the impost and gone regularly through the office, born on such queer vehicle of fame, a knowledge of my existence, so far as name conveys it, was carried where it had never been before. And I hope we'll never... <laughs> so, even though he's not made his fame as a writer, he's, he's published and some people have read him, he's laughing at himself because now people see his stamp all over the world. Mm -hmm. Think about the contrast between what he's saying about the Custom House, I'm saying this really seriously, and the task he faces as a poet that has to go back to his beginnings to do what he does in the story. Okay? Because this is just a stamp. But the past was not dead. Now, so, he says, so, even though he left everything that was important to him behind, his writing, to take on this job, the past was not dead. What he goes on to describe at this point is, is going up to this room at the top of the building and discovering this corner and these packages and um, coming across this package with this piece of cloth in it, page 28. Middle of the page. While thus perplexed and cogitating among other hypotheses whether the letter might not have been one of those decorations which the white men used to contrive in order to take the eyes of the Indians, I happened to place it on my breast. He looked inside this passage, got this red piece of cloth, puts it on his breast for no reason. It seemed to me, the reader may smile, but must not doubt my word, it seemed to me then that I experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so as of burning heat. And as if the letter were not of red cloth, but red hot iron, I shuddered and involuntarily let it fall upon the floor. That's the scarlet letter. So just by accident, opening up this package, he, he comes across this story of Hester Prynne and this letter, okay. which she wore on her breast, was the mark of sin for this community. It's what isolated her from her community. He puts it on his breast, and he has to drop it suddenly from the heat. Now, he, I think this is really crucial. Page 30. He starts pacing the upper rooms like Ahab on the deck, actually. 
and and he says this about the people. Um, page thirty, about a third of the way down. Remembering their own former habits, they used to say that the surveyor, the older one, was walking the quarterdeck. They probably fancied that my sole object, and indeed the sole object for which a sane man could ever put himself into voluntary motion because he's walking a lot and meditating on this letter, was to get an appetite for dinner. <laughs> That's as much as they can come up with. But here's a, here's a crucial line, and lots of people can read over it. He said, because remember he's done no writing, for his tenure here. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. It would not reflect or only with miserable dimness the figures with which I did my best to people it. He tries to reimagine what happened with Hester and that founding community and finds it almost impossible to do. Whatever you do with us, that expression on their the figures as, they, as he tried to imagine, what have you to do with us? The little power you might once have possessed over the tribe of unrealities is gone. You have bartered it for a pittance of the public gold. Mm -hmm. Go then and earn your wages. In short, the almost torpid creatures of my own fancy twitted me with imbecility and not without fair occasion. That is the part that justified in saying. I remember at one point in here he says that when the people in the custom house or anybody thought about what he was doing as a writer, they, their response is, why doesn't he get a job? Why isn't he doing something important? Because writing is stupid. Here he's turning the tables because he's letting the people who would people his imagination say to him, you've lost your power, stop whining, you've sold yourself out, go to your work. Page 31, third of the way down. Moonlight in a familiar room falling so wide upon the carpet and showing all its figures so distinctly, making every object so minutely visible, yet so unlike a morning or noontime visibility, is a medium the most suitable for a romance writer to get acquainted with his elusive guests. Go down. The pictures on the wall, all these details, so complete, the floor, bookcases, whatever's there, that they seem to lose their actual substance and become things of intellect. Nothing is too small or too trifling to undergo this change and acquire a dignity thereby. Child shoe, a doll, he yep. makes this long list is now invested with a quality of strangeness and remoteness, though still almost as vividly present as by daylight. Thus, therefore, the floor in our familiar room has become a neutral territory, somewhere between the real and the world, real world and fairyland. Actual and the imaginary may meet and each imbue itself with the nature of the other. Ghosts might enter here without affrightings. It would be too much in keeping with the scene to excite surprise, where we look about us to discover a form, beloved, somebody died in our life, but gone hence, now sitting quietly in a streak of this magic um, moonshine. Go down to the bottom 31. It throws its unobtrusive tinge throughout the room with a faint ruddiness upon the walls and ceiling. It could be firelight, moonlight, and reflected a gleam from the polish of the furniture. This warmer light mingles itself with the cold spirituality of the moonbeams and communicates, as it were, <laughs> the heart and sensibilities of human tenderness to the forms which fancy summons up. It converts them from snow images into men and women. Glancing at the looking glass, we behold deep within its haunted verge the smoldering glow of the half-extinguished anthracite, the white moonbeams on the floor, and a rep repetition of all the gleam and shadow of the picture with one remove farther from the actual 
and near to the imaginative. Then at such an hour and with such a scene before him, if a man sitting all alone cannot dream strange things and make them look like truth, he need never try um, to write romances. But he says, he's not written a long time, go down to the next batch, but the best I had was gone from me. It's like he sold himself out, he's not been able to write. He closes this meditation on his job, um, finally describing himself being um, beheaded, that thinking that he might be spared with the change in office, he wasn't, and he's put out. But once he is put out, he returns to his writing for the first time in a long time. Bottom of 37. Some of the briefer articles which contribute to make up the volume has likewise been written since my involuntary withdrawal from the toils and honors of public life, and the remainder are gleaned from annals and magazines of such antique date that they have gone around the circle and come back to novelty again. King becomes the metaphor of the political guillotine, because he was decapitated one with the change of regimes. The whole may be considered as the posthumous papers of a decapitated surveyor. And the sketch which I am now bringing to a close, if too autobiographical for a modest person to publish in his lifetime, will readily be excused in a gentleman who writes from beyond the grave. Peace be with all, this is so much like um, Ishmael, peace be with all the world, my blessing upon my friends, my forgiveness to my enemies, for I am in the realm of quiet. He's written this, we're reading it now, while he's dead, like a ghost from the past. Okay, um, quick question, and then I want to stop. Why did he write this custom house? Here, let me, just to, for, for those of you who have not read, in the very first chapter of Scarlet Letter, he describes the two fundamental institutions of any regime, a prison and a graveyard, because they signify that everybody's aware of death and sin. The things we can't escape, or from Hawthorne's perspective. He describes this flower bush next to the prison house from which Hester is going to emerge in a moment. The story is going to start with her coming from out of this prison. She's been in prison with a child. And it says at the bottom of page 41, there was this soil that had so early born the black flower of civilized society, a prison. But on one side, of the portal and rooted almost to the threshold was a wild rose bush covered in this month of June with its delicate gems which might be imagined to offer their fragments and fragile beauty to the prisoner as he went in and to the condemned criminal as he came forth to his doom in token that the deep heart of nature could pity and be kind to him. I hope you can hear the difference in tone. This rose bush by strange chance has been kept alive in history but whether it had been merely survived out of the stern old wilderness so long after the fall of the gigantic pines and oaks that originally overshadowed it, or whether, as there is fair authority for believing, it had sprung up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson as she entered the prison door, we shall not take upon us to determine, finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of the flowers Presented to the reader, it may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. That's the beginning. So, we just left the world of the present, the Custom House, 
and Hawthor is taking us back into the past where these strange things are going to happen. And he's already defined, he's given us a principle, an exegetical principle. There are two ways of representation in art. One of them is called a mirror. The other is a lamp. Or a firelight, a moon. A mirror gives you back exactly what's there. It's just a literal presentation. If you look at a mirror, you're not going to see ghosts. You're not going to see somebody handing you a flower from a real-life situation into a book. So in the very opening, Hawthorne has already, already taken us into a world of improbability, of mysteries. Remember the, the description of the moonbeams and the spiritualizes everything and haunts things? What he's doing is setting out a principle of his work. Because, I mean, just keep this in mind. If you were in the custom house and you spent your life in business, how receptive would you be to anything mysterious in life? So Hawthorne's indirectly giving us a principle of art. There are two kinds of art. One of them is completely mimetic. It just represents what's visibly present to our senses. In the other, there's something from inside the person that can transform things. So we entered the world of the custom house, the world of business, things, things as they are, it's the way of the world. We've left it and now entered, gone back to the past, to our beginnings, and, and in that world, strange things are going to happen. Okay? Now here's my question before we leave. Why did he write the custom house? Why did he do this? Because the custom house is so different in tone, in representation, in spirit, in every respect, it's absolutely different from what he presents in the story. Sometimes you need that contrast to really appreciate the difference, right? I mean, a light, if you're in darkness and you see a light, having been in that darkness, that light has a totally different impact on you than if you're sitting in a room of light and there's just a brighter light over there. Right. You need that contrast to really yeah. Yeah. appreciate the difference. Yeah. And to become aware. Yeah. Anybody else? Hmm. Let me offer just a couple of thoughts here. Well, well wait, let me, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between... Hold on, this is so important. He's already expressed his identity with the past and the soil. Right? He feels the sympathy of earth to earth, body, dust to dust. He identifies the past. He's already made a claim that he wants to do what he can to ameliorate the guilt. He's going to take that guilt on himself. So it's not just in his mind he's doing something about it. He's going to write this story. What's the difference between the first period? And I know you haven't read the book. I mean, most of you are, I don't know who you are, but um, what's the difference between those first settlers and the people who occupy the custom house? Has anything been lost? Purpose. Huh? A purpose. Take purpose. In, yeah? In the most deep way. These men live for nothing but sleep and eat. eat. What, what, I mean, the people in the boat sacrificed everything they could for their belief in God. Thanksgiving is a really important day because we're supposed to hold on to those things we can't see so often, you know, that we take for granted. 
The people in the custom house, the question here is, how much does work encourage a person to complacency? That they so begin to take things for granted that they put up blocks between what's going on between God and this world, say. Because those are the things that motivated the Puritans. The, the, the custom house scene is a parody. That's why so many people attacked Arthur, and they were just so offended by what he said. So one of the, it seems to me one of the functions is that it makes us aware that something's been lost. And, and I want to just put it this way. Was, was there something wrong in the Puritan theology that they couldn't hold on to? Or is it just time? What's happened between 1620 and 1850? Two, 200 years. I'm sorry. Just 200 years. I'm sorry, repeat that again. What's happened? What's happened? I mean, you've got, you've got these people, Fred used the word purpose, you've got these people who gave, sacrificed their lives to create the city on a hill, and now you've got these people in the custom house who, who, who spend their working hours sleeping and preparing for their next meal. What happened? Was, and so what just happened generally, but was there something to the doctrines that wouldn't stand the test of time? I'm just asking, I don't want to, you, and you've got to read. Um, he's, he's given us the print, also, he's given us the principles by which to read this book. The fire, the image of the fire, projecting a light, the warmth of it, the moonbeams. The, by the way, that's one of the definitions of romantic literature. Classical literature is looked at in terms of a mirror, the mimetic that it's... Romantic literature is presented as something that, that's both created that's both perceived and created. That the romantic person is, the romantic poet is presenting what's actually there, but infusing onto it, projecting onto it something in creating a work of art. So Hawthorne's giving us a, a principle for romantic literature. He's making it really clear what it is. We have to be aware of that when we go into it. How, how, are we reading the way we should? Or again, are we reading for our own ideas? And finally, I think, maybe most importantly, it seems to me he's using the custom house scene to justify what he's doing. And I, I can't underscore that enough. Hawthorne knows that he lives at a time when nobody believes in romance anywhere. anywhere. When we did Moby Dick, if you'll remember, all the, all the news articles, all the criticism that came out by people who had read Moby Dick debunked it. They said it was trash. It's all romantic nonsense. These things are improbable. They don't happen. Melville was dealing with the same thing. Melville and, Wright and Hawthorne are writing at a time when two traditions are coming into conflict, the scientific and the biblical. And people are increasingly turning away from biblical truths. They're living their lives according to another mode. So one of the problems they both faith is Faces. How do you get people to read romances when nobody believes in romance anymore? So this whole thing about, you know, about what happens in the custom app that gets us to that package is both an expose of the current generation and how far it's fallen from the first and how much has changed. And it's, it's trying to establish the reality of what he's about to do, that it actually took place. So those naysayers in the group who will go, oh, these things don't happen, are you kidding? 
Hawthorne's doing everything he can to root this thing in actual events of the past, to make it harder for us to dismiss it. It's a way of justifying, trying to make place for an element of romance in a world that no longer makes a place for it. Read the, read the Scarlet Letter. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary book. It's an ex it, he goes into the heart in, in a way few artists have been able to do. It's pretty an amazing work. So. Well, I'm just saying, you know, you, you state that the, the founding, that the foundings were not all pure, in fact, no. later yeah. generations were not. I know. That's just a bold, small fraction. He's so only... We tend to over, over, over... We're reading this book. I know, but I'm just trying to put it in I know. context. There were lots of other... Yes, you're right. Absolutely right. Small fraction. Yes. But, but if you look at what he's doing right. and look at today, yeah. if you see this black-white thing, yeah. Yeah, I, know I, mean, you, what, I mean, one of the things we come away with is what he's describing is something fundamental to the American character, even with all of its diversity. Right. Enjoy the Scarlet Letter. It's a really good book, you guys. So if that's the case, then no, it's boy, I, I, I cannot tell you how much I admire what you're doing on the what do you call it, the ellipsis, the elliptical ellipsis. I I don't know how you do that for as many hours as you do. Oh, you do. God.